podcast i'm larry i got derek here with me this week we are finishing up our look at the book of nehemiah we are going to be talking about false prophets fallen priesthoods and the forsaken temple but before we get into all that we're going to take a moment and hear from our sponsors hey guys thanks for listening to the gsm news podcast listen if you like what you're hearing if you want to continue getting this great content and you want to help support us consider going to patreon.com slash jesus name news you won't be sorry that you did thank you for listening welcome back to the jesus name news podcast this week we rejoin nehemiah after the dedication of the law the people and the priesthood and all these great things have taken place and the wall is completed and seemingly the people are committed to serving the Lord and following the law. Nehemiah 13 verses 1 through 3 actually says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people and in it was found that written no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. And the reason I say that we see people following the law is simply this. We find this law in Deuteronomy 23 and 3 through 5. And Again, the reason for it is because the Ammonites did not meet them with food and water, and we find that the Moabites try to hire Balaam. And, you know, these people were so ready. There was no hesitation from them to follow that law, to, to separate those of foreign descent from them. But if we do a bit of digging on these people, the Ammonites and Moabites, we find that they are the generations of Lot. And specifically from when he had intimate relations with his two daughters. And they get cut off to the 10th generation. And some people believe that this would mean forever. Based on Nehemiah 13, you could probably say that's right, but... We kind of have something interesting that we can talk about with that in just a second. Uh, you know, Lot, though, he he turns away towards Sodom. Abraham's like, hey, you know, you have your choose of the land. Decide which way you want to go. He chooses to pitch his tip toward Sodom. And I could tell you the thousands of messages I've heard on that. But his future descendants then would choose not to seek peace with Israel and they tried to curse them and now all these years later after you know Lot seemingly never even trying to rejoin himself to the covenant all these years later what we see is a people trying to restore their commitment to the covenant and the descendants of a man who walked away from the covenant are in the camp of those who are joining to the covenant yeah yeah definitely i 
I mean, there's so much to unpack here. I mean, there's so much going on at this point in this chapter. Um, it's interesting that he name drops Balaam because I think there's something really interesting about Balaam that I think is very in line with what's happening in this time. Because as we talked about a few, as we talked about about the people in that area and and the people in that were surrounding these Jews in Jerusalem is that the people around them believed themselves to be worshiping the same God as the Jews. They just included other gods in it. And the interesting thing about Balaam is he's not, it's never really said who the God he's serving is. However, God, the God of Israel speaks to him before he tries to curse Israel and warns him that he shouldn't do it. And then Balaam prophesies multiple correct prophecies. And the only reason that Balaam is successful in helping the Moabites and the enemies of Israel in overcoming them is because he figures out a way around the prophecy that God speaks through him. Yeah. Right? Like, Balaam's a false prophet, but not because his prophecies weren't true. He's a false prophet because he's evil and because his heart isn't right. But the prophetic words he spoke were true, at least every time they're recorded in the Bible. Well, yeah, and... and You know, and... And, and that goes very much into how these people outside of Jerusalem should be seen by these Israelites in that, yes, they seem to be worshiping God, and yes, they seem to be right, but when we allow ourselves to intermingle with them, we are defiling ourselves. And I think that's something that the modern church really needs to kind of understand more. I mean, every once in a while we hear of you know, some movement or some new movement that gets just dragged down in something awful. Or, you know, we realize just how weird and out there a new doctrine is a few years after it starts to take hold in a group. You know, talking about stuff like, you know, Graveland. Oh, yeah. God. (laughs) But, like, there's all these things that come up, and and we try so hard to allow those people space. But yeah, and, Paul and, says to expel false prophets. He says to kick to, to kick false doctrines out. They, they're told, just like they were told to clean the temple, just like they were told to clean their bloodlines, that they should be making sure their doctrines are pure in the New Testament. You know? Yeah. And, and it's because of people like Balaam who, when they prophesy, it's true, but the intents of their heart and what they're leading us to is evil. Exactly. And, and you know, we talk about how Balaam is basically a prophet for hire, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think of Simon the Sorcerer, he immediately comes to mind where he tries to buy the, the power of God. And yeah, you know that that's another reason though they that they get cut off from the tenth generation 
And, you know, I, you brought up something, you know, before we started getting into this that I didn't really think of, but maybe it's not really meaning forever. Maybe mm-hmm. it's meaning completion. David is a descendant of a Moabite. Ruth was a Moabite. Not only that, but Rahab was also not a Jew. Well, yeah. And, and, and so, yeah. So like 10 means if you, if you look at numerology, like 10 appears in tithing, it appears in the 10 plagues, the 10 commandments um, and things like that. So 10, it means, it means like, I mean, it seems to mean like completion. It means like, power and perfection like yeah. insight into god's power and perfection and so to the 10th generation probably isn't talking about a specific exact time frame but rather until the completion or perfection of that redemption yeah which uh, could and- be could be forever and could be the next day yeah and you know that that's it's something to think about because when you start thinking of well if it's to completion well who is the completer like who who makes it all complete <laughs> jesus and yeah at that point it doesn't matter and you know i just i just think like yes they took this very literal and they should have but you know, they come back into this idea that there was no hesitation from them to do this, even even if it wasn't literal 10th generation stuff, right? Didn't matter. There was no hesitation from them. And much like you said, like, we try to give these false prophets some space, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the reason that we're giving them space is because we're not using the red word of God as a mirror. Yeah. We're not allowing the word of God to do what it's supposed to do. And, and being, you know, we, we hold it up to show us our reflection, not to bend it to what we want or what we see, but to show us our impurity and our issues. And then they're, you know, should be no hesitation to fall in line with that word of God. But then you have people out here promoting false doctrine, like grave soaking and, you know, all that stuff, which I know some people, I'm just going to go, some people love Bethel, but, and I, I was one of those people very early on that loved them, but then they got into some weird stuff. And, or the um, songs from Hills. Yeah. <laughs> songs from hills you can you can do the math on that one um but th- that's the problem we're we're not allowing that red word of god to actually be a mirror and do what it was designed to do because it that's exactly what it was doing the law was created for, for the law was created to reveal sin mm-hmm and show people how to attend to it and make, you know, atonement for it. 
thankfully we have Jesus that kind of took care of all that. But, you know, that still, you can't slip into false doctrine. You can't slip into false prophets. And, you know, we then see that Nehemiah in, you know, verses 4 and 5 of Nehemiah 13, we see that Nehemiah leaves and goes back to Artaxerxes. And then we're reintroduced to a very familiar character. And this is why we're talking about false prophets and, you know, allowing false doctrine into, and why we've been hitting it so hard. We find that we're reintroduced to Tobiah, the Ammonite, the servant. But this time there's a new addition to Tobiah's identity. And that is that he's related to Eliashib, the chief priest, the high priest, who had given Tobiah a chamber in the temple, a storeroom in the temple. And why would he do that? Because Eliashib's grandson married Tobiah's daughter. And Tobiah the Ammonite, a servant, a bureaucrat, was called, was, was allied. He was related with the foremost spiritual authority in the land of Israel. And Tobiah didn't even think that Jerusalem was even worthy of being rebuilt at one point. But now that it is, it's a big deal. We find him there. I just, it, like, you know, we talk about this ahead of time. And I was just like, this is just weird. Like, whatever. Like, I can't, I don't understand this. But, like, hearing this again, it, like, gets me so mad. Like, this guy, the high priest, had money. Like, the priesthood was not poor in this time. He could have given, but I'm saying, like, he had a room he could have given his granddaughter's in-laws. Or grandson's in-laws, whatever, his grandchild's in-laws. If he wanted to give them a room, he had rooms everywhere. But instead... He decides he's going to dump out a storeroom in the holy consecrated temple and turn the temple into an ancient Airbnb for the pagan guy. It's not like they got the prophet Samuel or something who came through town and he needed a place to stay. And so you set him up a spot in the temple, you know, because he's actually like godly somehow. No, no. We, we clear out space in the temple for the false prophet. You know, I, I almost compare it to how uh, the priests in, in Jesus' time, coincidentally, uh, there are just so many parallels, I'm sorry. But they're, I almost compare it to that because if we look at what they were doing, they used their power and their position to bend and sway and you know gain favor with the roman authorities and it's almost like this is happening right here just to form an alliance with ammon and we just finished reading that the ammonites were not to be naturalized in the land of israel and they chose not to further the kingdom of God by not presenting, you know, bread and water. 
And we read that their father chose to pitch his tent towards Sodom and eventually live there and never join himself to the covenant. We read that the high priest is supposed to be a teacher of the law. The He's supposed to be an example and lead pe- the people with respect to the words of God. Yet what we see is a man who has joined himself to business, economics, and politics, and he's given a people that is cut off from the covenant a place of prominence in the temple. Can I, can I, can I take it a step further? Go on. <laughs> so Tobiah, we called them the serpent for a reason, right? Yeah. They let the serpent back into the presence of God. They let the serpent back into the connection to life that they had. The same way that the serpent slinks his way down the tree of life and talks to Eve. I mean, yeah. And I mean, like, I'm just like, like, it's just, again, it's another, another situation where like, how in the world does, cause you know, we, we were talking a little bit, we try not to talk about things that we talk about not on the show but it just happens but we were talking about how it's amazing how there's these periods of like constant of like multiple writings going on and we're going to talk about a little later because we're going to talk about Malachi which is in the same period of time as this Ezra was in the same period of time as this Nehemiah there's all these prophets that pop up at one time frame and all of a sudden there's all this writing and all this stuff going on right and it's amazing how in this short frame of time they have multiple threads of direct connection not some of them stated and some of them just implied by the story back to the story in genesis to the exodus to abraham and and lot to David, to all of these other time frames, And then in the New Testament, they come around and so many New Testament events also concurrently reference multiple of these different time frames where God is doing all of this stuff in Israel. Right. And it's just, it, it just tells us that there is something about the Bible because they, they didn't have a way to connect all these things. Like they didn't have, you know, some of the the technology we have where we could maybe fake some of this, you know, like claim some of it and connect things the way that they do because we have ways to track it. They didn't have any of that. Either it was true or they were hundreds and thousands of years past their capabilities in keeping some of these threads straight. Right. I mean, what you end up with is, you know, so many foreshadowing, so many references. And that's why, you know, I keep referencing back like it's very similar to Jesus time because you have a fledgling priesthood temple worship going on that that is kind of just being born. And in Jesus time, we see it in full fledge. But here, what we see is very similar where Caiaphas was very proud of his connections with Rome. Eliashib is very proud of his connection. Yeah. He's proud of it. He and he's going to make room for sin, just like you said. And and he's thrown out the stores of food and offering and the vessels and meant that were meant for the Levites and those that were keeping the temple. But 
what he's done in my opinion is best summed up in malachi chapter 2 verses 1 through 9 it says and now O priest this command is for you if you will not listen if you will not take to heart to give honor to my name says the lord of hosts then i will send the curse upon you and i will curse your blessings indeed i have already cursed them because you did not lay it to heart behold i will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces the dung of your offerings and you shall be taken away with it so shall you know that i have sent this command to you that my covenant with levi may stand says the lord of hosts my covenant with him was one of life and peace and i gave them to him it was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. A, he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from your from your way, from the not your way, says the way. You have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. And what Eliashib has done has set an example for the people because he's profaned the priesthood with his actions. And, you know, I, first of all, when when I read, the, you've turned aside from the way, I immediately go to, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And But beyond well, that. Followers of the way. I mean, it, it's interesting how they called themselves that. Yes. Like they took when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and they took that very specifically and literally. But again, we what is what does Peter call us? A royal priesthood. That's what we were supposed to be. Yeah. And it's interesting that in Malachi and, and Nehemiah, what we see is a priesthood that has turned from the way. And Nehemiah finds out when he gets back to Jerusalem and what does he do with all of Tobias stuff? He throws it out and he demands that the room be purified and the offerings and the vessels restored. But, you know, he finds out that because the offerings and all that were thrown out by Elisha, the priests and the singers haven't been getting the portions that they are supposed to get. And because they're not getting the portions, they return home to their homes and to their fields. And then we get a very heartbreaking line. Nehemiah 13, 11 says, so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And, you know, I often think about how these sorts of things can happen. But I noticed that this is only happened once since ne once Nehemiah left. It only happened once Nehemiah was gone, and he was gone for about ten to twelve years. And I can only compare it to this and what we would know today, it's like you have this Holy Ghost fire revival, but a year later you're back in the same pit and in the same situation as you were and probably even worse. 
And then I start thinking about wheats and tares and, you know, when does, when does the enemy come and sow the tear when the servant is asleep, when they're not attending. Right. And yeah. And if, it makes me think of how important it is to have ministry and to have that place that we can gather, you know, there's, there, there can be a lot of undercurrents in our churches of like, and, and this is so important because Malachi is about this and this part of Nehemiah is about it. They weren't giving to the priesthood. They weren't taking care of the ministry. And so, of course, the worship to God fell out of out of function. And, of course, the priests had to go find other things to do. And the thing is, is that we sometimes have people who want to fight against supporting ministry and they want to go against supporting the work of God and the house of God and paying for these things. But then, you know, a lot of times those people are the first ones that, you know, they're in the hospital and they're like, well, why ain't the pastor visiting me? Well, you weren't supporting him. So he had to get a nine to five job. And so he's at work. Yeah. You know, like, of course he can't just drop everything and visit you. He's got a day job because you're not supporting him and you're, encouraging everyone around you to also not support him exactly you know yeah. and like and like the there's a reason that the the levites like literally somewhere between 112th and like 115th to 120th of the people depending upon how large some of these tribes got and the fact that there never really were just 12 tribes there were always some extra ones around but like even if it was 5% of the population was supposed to be set aside to like ministry as a career. Imagine how much more powerful our churches would be if we all gathered together and supported ministry to a level where for every five families, there was one person who was working in the church and supported by the church. Right. Like, we would never stop growing. Well, yeah. And, you know, I think about, uh, you know, if Nehemiah is in Jerusalem, Elisha probably doesn't give that room to Tobiah. Mm-hmm. And since Nehemiah had left and Elisha presumed he wasn't returning, Elisha went ahead and did it. And the man who was supposed to guard knowledge and provide instruction, you know, that you're talking about people in the church saying we're not going to support, but what's bad is when the high priest yeah. is the one that's saying we're not going to support. Oh yeah. And, and, or... and really he didn't, he didn't say it, but his, his action said it doesn't matter enough. Yeah. And... Yeah, and, and it's interesting how, you know, we talked about how this is the priesthood that that survives to Jesus' time, you know, and, like, the New Testament church didn't set that up. Like, they forsook hierarchy to yeah. such a massive degree in response to all the negatives they were seeing of it. That's so visible here. I mean... Nehemiah leaves, but Nehemiah never had permission to stay. For no. Nehemiah to stay would have been a betrayal of the empire 
that was giving them permission to carve out a small place for themselves. You know, exactly. and, and that's, that's not, that's not wise. <laughs> well, yeah, but, I mean, and, he, he can't, but, he doesn't have a choice. Yeah. And, and they began to fix the people and the people began to repent, but the evils that Nehemiah saw in leadership weren't truly fixed. Yeah. And, and that creates this massive hole you know, he just got finished building a physical wall, but now there's this massive hole in the spiritual wall. Yep. And obviously, because the tithe and offering, like I said, his actions showed that, you know, supporting this work didn't matter. Because the tithe and offering weren't housed in that storeroom where they were supposed to be, it's probably mismanaged. It's probably been embezzled. It's probably, you know, taken by robbers and other things. So Nehemiah demands that the tithe and this offering be brought back in. And then I love what Nehemiah does. He appoints reliable men to manage and distribute it. You know, we're, we're so focused on, uh, you know, at work, we, I hate using like personal stuff. But at work, we have people who complain all the time. I, I'm, I know every workplace has it, but we have people who complain all the time. And Nehemiah, he, he went to the officials and he's like, why is the house of God forsaken? You know, some of the questions that I get as a leader are like, what do you want me to do about it? What solution have you got? And what I love about Nehemiah is that Nehemiah coming from, you know, the capital city of Persia has the political prowess enough to understand what reliability looks like and what accountability looks like. And so he ingrains that into the priesthood and Nehemiah is doing all this without regard to Eliashib's or Tobias feelings, thoughts, or political implications that could come from it. And he didn't care that Eliashib would resent him. Yeah. Nehemiah cared because he was a good man and that, and that good man wanted good things for the people of God. And as Malachi had prophesied in Malachi three, he said, bring the tithe and offering into the storehouse and thereby put me, me being God to the test that I won't open up the windows of heaven for you and pour you out a blessing until there is no more need. You know, when we begin cozying up to the enemy, we're choosing to starve what should be ministering to us. The temple was forsaken because the enemy was given a place. You know, you said that he allowed that serpent to slip in and, and just as he slithered down that tree, he, that, that serpent slipped into the temple. Yep. And it was through the most influential spiritual authority in the land. And because the temple had been forsaken and the ministry had to leave to find the means, the people descended into spiritual darkness and neglect. And the Jews were a set-apart people. They were God's own possession. They were holy. But if you're saved, what are you saved from? What are you set apart from? What are you chosen out of? You know... It's so important to understand what we're safe from and what we're safe to. Um, 
but you know what I find interesting and and feel free when you're editing this to like maybe play like America the Beautiful in the background of this thing because I'm about to say something like positive of America and I know that sometimes that probably uh people who know me that might be rare I love America I just am aware of our 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 words but Nehemiah does something naturally that we, when we were created as a nation, put into place specifically is that he created a separation of powers. When Nehemiah left, the high priest had all this autonomous power, almost like a kingship, right? He could just empty out big chunks of the temple and give a giant storeroom to his in-law, right? Like it was his personal home that he had all this stuff, but Nehemiah he creates a separation of power. He realizes that you have to have a separation between the financially powerful, the spiritually powerful, the politically powerful. You have to have different ranges of these that are working together because if any of that gets mixed in together, it creates a lack of health. Yeah. You know, and that's something that, that our country was built on is that we have to have those separated powers so that no single group gets so much power that they can, they're not supposed to be able to get enough power to persecute other people. Well, and you know what? Uh, we, we did an episode where we called Nehemiah a caring politician. That's what he was. He was a politician yeah. at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And, but what's interesting is how we always dog in America. We dog our politicians. This time it's the, it's the religious authority. And for all intents and purposes, that religious authority was a political authority in that mm-hmm. land. And yeah, that's where the issues arise, not only in Nehemiah's time, but in Jesus' time. And, you know, we think about, uh, I, I want to go back to that forsaken temple idea. You know, John chapter 8, when we talk about John chapter 8, you know, this woman is brought and you know verse one of john chapter eight says that jesus went up into the mountain valleys but if you read closely it's real quick verse two says in but early in the morning he went back to the temple and so the priests had left the temple to go get this woman caught in adultery brought her to the temple A place where, for all intents and purposes, her sins could have been, you know, sacrificed and atoned for. They brought her into the temple. And that temple should not have had, you know, Jesus, when when our law says, you know, that we should stone her. But what do you say? Jesus just stoops down on the ground. He writes in the dust. And, you know, we... I've used this as a point in the sermon to talk about, to talk about, you know, it doesn't matter how, you know, what Jesus wrote, because it's not our business of how Jesus saves people. But I want to hit on something real quick. That temple shouldn't have had any dust in it, because if that temple is being kept properly, there's not enough dust for Jesus to ride in the ground. You know, the reason that it had dust was because, once again, the temple is in disrepair. It's being forsaken. It's been ignored. Yeah, I mean, 
and when you look at it though like even in that act they were neglecting the temple like i just i just okay in your head the temple is not the place for this okay eli's sons one of their primary sins was that they were taking the women the daughters of israel in the temple yard yeah they were they were having their way with them if you catch that drift okay yeah here's the thing when it says she was taken in the taken in it says she was taken in adultery that word taken it literally means to lay hold of it's like i took a cookie i took the cookie right she was taken she was apprehended laid hold of and dragged away in the very act of adultery Okay, so her and this man are in the act of sleeping together. And these priests barge in the door. I mean, that's what that word is saying, that these priests barged in the door, grabbed the woman in the act and dragged her out through the streets of Jerusalem and into the holy place of the temple. I'm sure that they did not kindly ask the woman to make herself appropriate for public. Yeah, she's probably so disheveled. She's probably disheveled, more than likely naked, being dragged through the streets of the city and into the temple and thrown at the feet of Jesus. None of this should have happened in the temple, but then they go and they grab a bunch of stones. Jesus is standing in the temple and these guys are holding stones wanting to execute someone in the temple. Which is supposed to be done outside the gates. Which is supposed to be done outside of the gates. Like, because it 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 doesn't just say that they went, oh, fine, we won't stone her. They, let me see, where is it? Like. It says that they, Begin throwing the stones they down. Began throwing the stones down. Yeah, like, like this was not just they. They weren't just saying, "Hey, Jesus, we're gonna drag her out. We want you to approve it and join with the mob." They were saying, "Hey, here's some stones. Let's do it right now in the temple." Like every single part of that story is defiling the temple. And that's why the you know we. That's why I say like it doesn't matter what you're on the ground. But what's interesting is is that we talk about Nehemiah going to the officials and saying, why is the house of God forsaken? Jesus is in his own house. And there's dust in it. I mean, for all intents and purposes, maybe he's spinning down and he's writing in the dust and they're realizing how dirty the temple has really got. Maybe he's just, you know, kneeling down and wiping his finger in the dust, holding his finger up and looking at them like, what you talking about? Your own house isn't even in order. Like, do you see this dust? Like, what's your problem? Like, like you know, your mom, when you, you were told to, like, you know, clean the furniture, or clean the table or something, and she's just like, um, no, no. Yeah. Know, maybe it, that it, was just, maybe that was just my mom. <laughs> Well, it just, to me, it's like, you know, they're ready to stone her. He bends down. Verse 8 says, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But then, but when they heard it, 
they went away one by one. So what? It wasn't even that he bit down and wrote on the ground. It's they heard him say, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. It says when when they heard it, he's been down on the ground. And when they heard it, they throw the stones down and walk away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus is left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up to her and said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Where it, the KJV says, where are those thine accusers? And she looks around and says, no one, Lord. You know what's interesting about that word when it says, when they hear it? Um, yeah. one, of the, one of the definitions, it means to, to give ear to a teaching or a teacher, to comprehend, to understand. It wasn't saying when they heard the things he said. Whatever he said and wrote all of a sudden they understood what he meant. Like they got what he was implying about them. And that's why they dropped the stones and walked. That's why they went away. That's why they stopped because, because, uh, because I guarantee when they heard they, they wasn't saying they heard like, you know, the, uh, the sound waves hit their ear. It's saying they heard, like they understood what he meant. That's interesting. And that lets me know that when he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, the sin was among them. Well, yeah, I mean, I always, I've heard a lot of people also theorize, like, where was the dude? You can't commit adultery by yourself. The sin was among them. Yeah, more than likely. And, and that, you know, we talk about how the house of God being forsaken. Look, these people that Jesus is speaking to right here, these Pharisees are obviously more called up and, and their own political game and, and preserving their power than keeping the temple and making sure that the priesthood isn't defiled. And I just want to do a parallel real quick. What is Nehemiah doing? Nehemiah's being like, hey, we need to keep the temple and purify the priesthood. There's so many parallels. And I I just wonder if he referenced Nehemiah at all. And I, I know that there's been so many theories about what he wrote. And, and I know it really doesn't matter. But this is the same exact idea Nehemiah had. He's, he's literally saying... You know, look, you, the sin, you have sin among you, and you're a purified priesthood. You're supposed to be pure. Nehemiah, when he left Israel, the priesthood was purified. When he comes back, it's defiled. Jesus, when he enters the scene, the priesthood is defiled. And that's where the issue really lies. And again, you know, these people, this priesthood is supposed to be set apart from not only pagans, but from their own people. Yeah. And they're supposed to be God's ministry, God's own possession. They're supposed to be the ones that stand in the place of Israel and, and speak for the people to God. They're supposed to be the ones that are atoning for the sins of the people. But they can't even atone for the sins of themselves. Yeah, 
Yeah, and you know, something you said just hit in my head because it was something else that I thought of when we were talking about Balaam. It's interesting that Nehemiah comes to confront the start of this priestly line of sinful high priests, right? Yeah. And he references Balaam, the false prophet who was false because he was evil, but his prophecies were true, right? The high priest, Caiaphas, also prophesied correctly and accurately. But there's no indication that Caiaphas ever was converted or Caiaphas ever believed. Right. But in the New Testament, in the Gospels, he prophesies accurately. Yeah. You know, and it, it's just, it's interesting how there's these connections between these men who, I mean, it never says that as much as it shows the sins of this high priest, right? It never says that he wasn't, shouldn't have been a priest. It never says that he wasn't serving God somehow. Right. You know, Eli is never said to be a a false priest, even though he was obviously sinful. Right. You know, Balaam is a false prophet, but he's shown to always prophesy accurately. Jesus never said to Caiaphas, you're not a real priest. You know, the way God yeah. used them was never negated by the sins that they had. God winked, I think is the verbiage that's you. At one time, God winked. Yeah. You know, well, also the, the the call of God is without repentance. Exactly. And, and I mean, Saul was still Saul. Israel was still blessed through Saul's power after Saul fell on some level. They still yeah. won battles. They still prospered to a point. They didn't prosper the way they should have, but they still prospered because God didn't forsake the people because of their evil leader. Right. And, and you know, to your point. You know, what I find interesting is when Nehemiah is doing all this, you know, he's he's restoring the priesthood. Then he, he goes and he finds people, you know, trespassing the Sabbath and all that. And we're not going to take time to read it uh, because it's kind of like an aside to everything else that's going on. But again, that seems to stick. That something else Nehemiah does seems to stick with the Sabbath, because even in Jesus' time, we see a point of contention between Jesus and the Pharisees and Sadducees over the Sabbath. And, you know, I, I, I wonder why, like, you know, Nehemiah is so successful at this. And it's obviously not about power. It's about obedience. It, it was about being submitted to the law of God and having a zeal for the things of God. And, as zealous as Nehemiah was about the physical state of Jerusalem, I believe more impressive is his zeal for the spiritual state of Israel. You know, he's acting, we talked about false prophets, but Nehemiah is acting in the stead of a prophet, but he's doing what Jeremiah and Ezekiel never could do because he has the political power backing him. Yeah. He has the letter of a king backing him. Malachi was prophesying and rebuking, but Nehemiah had the power to enact true reform that would seemingly last at the time of Jesus. And, and, and it's interesting that 
so many reforms that were shown in the Old Testament that were shown in the Bible, right? They failed to last two generations. You know, and this one lasts like, 400 years. And this one lasts 400 years through wars and famines and sieges of Jerusalem and all of these things that happened in those 400 years with no prophets that we ever get writings of really. Yeah. You know, and yet through all of that time, Nehemiah's reforms stick. Well, but, but he's not done. He's not <laughs> or even at close least to some that. of them. I mean, the fact that any of them stuck is impressive, even if they all did, you know? Well, yeah, but, but Nehemiah isn't done by any means because then he goes out and he discovers that people are marrying and giving in marriage their children to those from Moab, Ammon, and Ashdod. And, and, and just to clarify for those listening, I know we talked about this like 20 episodes ago. Marrying and giving in marriage, all that means is that your sons are marrying and your daughters are being given in marriage. It doesn't have some nefarious secondary meaning. It literally yeah. just means their young people are marrying each other in an old Englishy, other language, ancient worldy way. Yes. And <laughs> and Ezra had addressed this issue before, but it had crept back into the lives of the Jews while uh, Nehemiah is gone just for 10 years. And why not? Right. Yeah. When I mean, the high priest did it. Why can't everybody else? Exactly. The high priest gave his, you know, son. Why can't I? And, you know, when the religious leader is allied with the enemy, you know, (laughs) come on, you know, their children, I think this is kind of where the issue really was, was their children do not speak the language of the Jews. They speak the language of those who God had cut off and forbidden to be accepted into his covenant. God had expressly forbidden this way back with Moses and Joshua and Nehemiah is wise enough to remind them about Solomon who married you know, what was it? 700 concubines. And he says, look, like even Solomon, this great man married these pagans and that caused him to fall. Yeah. He was given to sin because of the many wives he had. And, and these children, I want to just point out during this time, you don't have what we have today where the father is probably very involved. Hopefully these children are raised by their mothers meaning their mothers and the servants of their mothers speak the language of the enemy. And that's where we find the church today. Well, the other thing about the mothers is that if, if you really look at the cultures, right, the man would stay in the household of his father, but the woman would actually move and be in the household of the husband's family. So when they married their daughters to the sect, to the pagan men, their daughters left Israel entirely. Yeah. And when their sons married the pagan women, the women came in and were living in the camp, but didn't believe. And that's why their children didn't know these things because the men might've known, 
but all the women who known were known were being sold to the enemies. Right. And again, you know, I hate to make this comparison, but that's where we found the church today. You know, unlike Peter, whose speech portrayed him as a disciple when he lied, you, you know, though he's he's sitting around a fire and someone's <laughs> like, your speech betrays you because you sound like a Galilean. And our speech is betraying us because our mother isn't the church today, mm-hmm. whether we like it or not. I mean, when you, we just got finished talking about great, when you're talking about grave soaking, when you're talking about, you know, the song of hills when you're talking about all these different things I love that, that are going on now yeah when you're talking about of all the all the false doctrines that are in the church today i'm sorry your mother isn't the church your mother is power your mother oh. is the enemy we've we've married ourselves to things that we ought not marry and we've set up idols and a corrupt language has taken hold and this isn't something that happens overnight no but it only takes one generation. And we're it's supposed generational to curses that the church is bringing upon themselves by selling out for power. And the problem is that it's not the people who sell out for power who suffer the consequences for those that sell out. It's their children. It's yeah. their children's children. It's those that are off from them because they're going to die off and be gone before the carnage of their actions ever take hold and the punishment really comes. Exactly. And, you know, we we're supposed to be a holy people, a holy nation and a, and a holy people and a holy nation does not and cannot allow unholy, wicked communication and false idols to take root. But that's what is happening. Because again, I, I always make the comparison. Peter used Exodus 19 as a baseline for 1 Peter 2. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And and we're sitting here and we're talking about, you know, not giving our wives in marriage and not giving our daughters in marriage. And let's be real. We're not talking about interracial. We're not talking about anything. We're talking about people who forsake the grace, mercy, and doctrine of Jesus Christ in exchange for corrupt doctrine, a doctrine that that is, you know, what Paul warned Timothy of, a doc, you know, when, when they're going to heap teachers up for themselves, when they're going to heap up people who will speak to their truths, not the truth. Because it starts innocently, right? Like that, and that's kind of my thing with like non-denominationalism in a way. It's innocent at first because it starts with we just want to get people attracted into the church, into Jesus. But it ends with serving the gods of this world if you're not careful because it ends with the people that have cheap grace and cheap faith that cost them nothing and i know that those are some very strong words and there's probably going to be some people that cut us off right after they hear this but that's just how it is 
because again it starts very innocently but it ends with you serving the god of this world and that's exactly where the people of judah were and that's exactly where we're at today we have a people a a church that serves political corruption that serves that serves power that serves immorality that bows down and tries to tries to cater and be seeker friendly instead of god friendly whether we like it or not you yes we need people to get into the church but you cannot sacrifice doctrine for it and nehemiah is concerned with all of this foreign influence because of the impact it always has on the dedication of the jews to yahweh and again you're set apart but what are you set apart from because you look just like the world you act just like the world you speak just like the world what are you set apart from you wicked priesthood you wicked generation you know jesus said you know peter said save yourselves from this untoward generation look i'm i'm telling you today that we're in a wicked priesthood we've allowed false doctrine to settle into the church and we've married ourselves to politicians and power instead of marrying ourselves to the church. Yeah. And I know that those are harsh words. I know that that's unpopular and I'm okay with that because usually that means you're right. And, and that's why, you know, I, I talked to some people at work, my best friends, by the way, I, so my, my bet two of my best friends that I've ever had are where I work. And I told them one is a, uh, one grew up in denominationalism and he's now kind of like a, a, a deist. He believes that there is a God, but not necessarily Jesus. And the other is kind of like, one of those reformed people kind of once saved, always saved. And I told them and speaking, you know, I, I'm pretty straightforward with what I believe. I told them like, you know, I've got like so many pages about Genesis and I'm working on Nehemiah and all this. And I told them I'm, I'm a little bit different because I contend against the American church. And it's not because I want to be edgy. It's because what I look at when I see the American church is a people who calls themselves holy, but has no clue what holiness is. Yeah. And Nehemiah, once again, that foreign influence. And we talk about, well, we got to figure out a way to, to, to get these people in. So we adopt certain things from the world. And to a degree, you know, musical styles, things whatever that's that's different we but can the all issue sound like is, cold play that's cool exactly but the issue is when you allow that 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 serpent on the tree that to buy a, a room in the temple that's where the issue lies and nehemiah you know chapter 13 verse 28 goes and one of the sons of jehoiada the son of eliashib the high priest was the son-in-law of guess who 
Sambalot the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. What Nehemiah found in Jerusalem was a wicked priesthood that had allowed unholiness, unrighteousness, and sin to settle into the people. And this son of Jehoiada was set up by Sembla as a priest in Samaria. This son is and Sembla are the ones that build a temple on Mount Gerizim and that they revere as the one true temple of Yahweh. They would form their own unique version of the Pentateuch, that those first five books of the Bible. They would consider themselves the true descendants of Israel. They would form their own unique Jewish religion and disavow Jerusalem and the Levitical priesthood. But the Samaritans are not purely Jewish. They are mixed blood with the blood of pagans. And it is here we see the Samaritan woman saying, our fathers worshipped in this mountain because they claim to be the true descendants of Israel and of the covenant. And that's why you have to be careful where you're going to hit your wagon because you'll end up in apostasy. In a place of hatred, rejection of truth, and you'll heap up prophets and teachers that will affirm your ideals rather than proclaim the truth and righteousness. And Nehemiah ends with this. Remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priest and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh, oh my God, for good. And when he's praying this, that God, he's praying, first of all, that God would convert these people that he would put them in mind to seek the right way. Much like Nehemiah, much like Malachi had said in Malachi chapter two, they, they have, they've went away from the way they've, they've turned from the way he's praying that they would get back in the right way and that God would convert them. And really what we see happening in Nehemiah sets the stage for my, in my opinion, a coming Messiah. Because many of the same things that Nehemiah set up for good end up being perverted for religious and political power in Jesus' time. So though Nehemiah did a many great things and set right the hearts of the Jews, and he is integral to, to the story of the coming Messiah, it is in Nehemiah that we see a stage being set for the Lord's coming. And the prophet Malachi would cry in the final chapter of the Old Testament, which happens in about 420 BC. It's truly poetic, if I'm being real, but this is the, the final bit of the Old Testament because you turn the page and suddenly you see, you see in those days, and it starts recounting the, the uh, lineage of Jesus. It says... In Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with the healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, 
and you shall tread down the wicked. For they shall will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that's where we're at. Whether we like it or not, we're in a day that the Lord's coming back, and we have a priesthood. Again, we are the priests. We have a priesthood in America that is wicked, that's turned from the way, that is silent on sin and has allowed it a place in the temple. And for what? In the name of political power, in the name of having an ally in Samaria, in the name of, you know, wealth, in the name of not offending someone. Or in the, in the name, name of offending people that we dislike. Yeah, in the name of, yeah. That's where we're at. And we know who Elijah the prophet was that prepared the way of the Lord was John the Baptist. And he was that, that, that guy that the priests went out and saw and he said, Oh, Oh, wicked viper. He called, I believe he called them vipers. He called the priests vipers. And this is, this man is in the power and spirit of Elijah. It's just, it's interesting to me, and and I'm really glad this is at the end, so. <laughs> um, it's interesting to me how often the move of God is killed by secular politics. And not in the way that we think, like they were persecuted, because persecution causes the move of God to grow every time. Yep. Right? Now, unless it was a punishment that came from God, in which case then it wasn't a move of God being quelled. But when God was really moving and there was persecution, God blessed through the persecution and it actually saw growth of his people. But what kept happening is that they would grow and they would be blessed and eventually they would turn those blessings into political power and they would fall away into the sins of political authority in earthly kingdoms. We see it with the Israelites in Egypt. We see it in the Exodus in the wilderness where they decide not to cross over because of human politics. We see it in the promised land where they decide to spare people and they get punished for hundreds and hundreds of years for it. We see it in Nehemiah. We see it in the time of Jesus. We see it today. We get caught up and we turn the holy, that which is separated to God, and we make it profane by turning it into something that is about this world and the sin and the, the evil of this world, instead of letting Jesus be Jesus, we try and make Jesus a part of human sin, you know, 
And it's just interesting how this ends that way and how it points to so many other places where it ends that way. And we're so much in that now. So I, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed this time that we've talked about Nehemiah. It's been great. Um, it's definitely been one of my favorite series that we did. And I am very excited for what we have coming for you guys in the next few weeks we are turning the pages and we're going to be talking about a church that is doomed. A church that wasn't going to be lasting for very long. And yet a letter was deemed to be needed to be written to these people that had no future. And, and what can we possibly learn from that letter that not only was sent to a doomed people, but was one of the letters that was preserved and, we still have today and so we're excited for you all to join us starting next week as we dive into the book of colossians